You're listening to the Packernet Podcast Network. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident panelist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore daddy. As per the huge, lots to talk about today. First things first, um, continually getting some good news about uh, Damar, which is fantastic. Um, don't know anything definitively, but um, hearing things like making substantial improvements overnight and things like that are uh, pretty exciting, so... But I want to start off with looking at the defense. Um, there are certain things that probably aren't answerable, but I'm going to get stuck on them because they fascinate me. Uh, last week it was the fraudulent Minnesota Vikings and the questions that come with that and um, really digging into it and, and seeing how, how deep that well goes. Another thing that I, I find interesting that we're not talking about at this particular moment is the home and away thing with Detroit because it is so vast that you almost wonder how much of it can even be real. How much of that gap between a 30-point scoring offense, only scoring 19 points on the road, can actually be attributed to being on the road as opposed to random chance, which is one of the biggest negatives about the NFL is there's such a small sample size. That's why, honestly, analytics and, and stuff in baseball and basketball is so much better. Betting and everything is down to extreme precision. The NFL is really not. And that's one of the complications I have when I'm doing my, my score predictions because you want to be as granular as possible. But even if you look at, for example, the home and away splits, right? If, if I just do the general scoring the way I did before with the, the season DVOA, you get a number. But I want to look at home and away. The problem with that, though, is that you cut all those games in half, and now we're looking at like seven, eight games, which is not a big sample size. And then if you really want to start to narrow it down, let's say you want to look at a Sunday night, well, then there's nothing to go off of. I think this is Jared Goff's first primetime game as a Detroit Lion. And by primetime, I'm not talking about like Thanksgiving. I'm, I'm talking about, because I think that was during the day, I'm talking nighttime, bright lights game. I don't think he's had one as a Lion in two years. It was funny, I was watching uh, Amon Ra and Equinemius St. Brown, uh, yeah, Amon Ra and Equinemius have a podcast they do together or something, or they, they have a chat once in a while, and um, you can tell they're brothers. I mean, they, they, they still act like they're teenagers. You know, they, they got this little rivalry, this little tit-for-tat thing constantly, constantly bickering and arguing on this show, but one of the things Amon Ra, um, or Equinemius, who was a bear, asked Amon Ra about it, and uh, I think... Amon Ra for the Lions and said, This is our first Monday, Monday or Sunday. This is our first night game or something. And Equinemius is like, What? I thought you had a Monday night game. He said, No, this is our first one. And he's I thought everybody did. And this is coming from a Chicago Bear saying, I thought everybody had a primetime game. He's like, No, this is our first. I'm telling you that. Like, like drop it. <laughs> he said, Yeah, they do the Lions dirty. But again, I, I, I can't. Now I'd have to go over, over several years, and now the data becomes less reliable. Which is the other problem. You also want to look at more recent data. Because the more recent it is, the more reliable it is. The longer you go out, the less reliable, but the more data you have. 
So the NFL is really difficult. And as such, I'm struggling with this Packers defense thing. Because as I've told you, since after the bye, the Packers defense has been legit. I was on a podcast yesterday hosted by a Chicago Bears fan, but it's sort of an NFC North North roundtable. And the question was posed, is this real, this thing that happened to the Vikings? And, you know, on one hand, I say, well, it's not just the Vikings. They've been doing it since their bye, which lends it some level of credibility. We know that they've done some things after the bye, and, and they seem to have more energy after the bye. So there's reasons to believe it's believable. The problem that I have, that the biggest fear is it's only three games. And in reality, this isn't the first time this year that they've been on a three-game stretch where the defenses look good. Over the last three weeks since the bye, the Packers DVOA, remember negative is good, negative 11.6, negative 43.3, negative 17.6. That's fantastic. And again, it's, I believe, number one in the NFL in the last three weeks. Number one defense. However, weeks 8, 9, and 10, the defense was actually uh, potentially, well, no, it wasn't better. It was, it was a three-game stretch, though. Negative 13.6 against Buffalo, negative 23.5 against Detroit, negative 5.3 against Dallas. That's a three-game stretch, but it was followed by three bad games, and it was preceded by four bad games. New England, the Giants, the Jets, and Washington, the defense graded out, or I guess we call it graded out by via DVOA, poorly. And then after the three-game stretch with Buffalo, Detroit, and Dallas, they had Tennessee, Philly, and Chicago, where the defense did not grade out well at all. So is this just another three-game stretch that's about to end? Or potentially four-game stretch that's going to end in devastating fashion in the playoffs? And I'm not sitting here saying I expect every single game to be great. There's ups and downs for everybody. In fact, even San Francisco, who's been hailed as the most dominant defense in football, unfortunately for them, their first, or or their second, actually, two-game not-great streak happened the last two weeks against the Raiders and against Washington. They've actually had positive DVOAs after about a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven-ish game in a row stretch of pure dominance. Then they had two bad games as a defense, but prior to that was five great. And by great, I'm talking 20s and 30s, negative 20s and 30s pretty much every single week, but two bad games in a row. Now, do I expect them to be garbage forever, or do I think they're going to rebound? They're probably going to rebound, but there's, there's ups and downs for everybody. But the question is, what are you generally? If I were to just pick a number right now as, as a DVOA, 0, 5, 15, negative 30, what would be the right number? So that's what brings me to this article written by uh, our buddy Dara um, over at Packer Report via 247sports.com. He wrote an article entitled, The Packers Completely Overhauled the Defensive Structure at the Bye Week, and I found it really interesting for quite a few reasons. First of all, he gives some details, and I'm sure it's much more granular than this, but in in a sort of macro sense, um, him being a, uh, I believe, PFF grader, he has some insights into things that PFF has that the rest of us cannot see, and um, fortunately, they're allowing him to use that to give us some insights into the Packers. So, um, I want to look into this, kind of skipping down a little bit. There is a subheading, whatever, schematic differences before and after the bye week. Dara goes on to say, across the first 13 games of the season, the Packers played cover two, both man and zone, which is two deep safeties, uh, two deep safeties and then man generally across the board is my understanding, on less than 4% of their snaps per PFF. In the three games since, we're talking this is post-bye now, 
they're playing cover two on 17.6% of snaps, which is over four times more often. 17.6 may not seem like much, but it's the fourth highest mark in the NFL. Cover two is a lot less common than most fans tend to think. That's not the only major change in the coverage scheme. Barry has also stepped up the cover six usage from 7.7% before the bye week to a league-leading 28.1% in the three games since. Cover six is... People who understand this stuff are going to be mad at me for saying this, but it's very similar to cover two, conceptually. So what I'm saying is this category as a whole has really taken a jump, and that's what he says here. That means cover two and cover six are accounted for a relatively massive 45.6% of the Packers' defensive play calls. Now remember, the, the what did he say? The uh, Oh, he didn't say. All right, never mind. I was going to compare it to the league average, but he didn't give that. He says, what do these two coverages have in common? They're the only defensive plays in football which feature a deep half zone. You'll find two of them in cover two and one deep half zone in cover six. In cover six, Barry assigns the deep half zone to the free safety, usually Rudy Ford. So cover six is is essentially cover two, where you got the two halves. But then on the other half, one of those halves gets split in half again. And so you have two guys covering that zone. So it's a half and then two quarters. So what he's saying is the guy that's assigned to that half is Rudy Ford, which is really shocking. I mean, just from from a layman's perspective, because in my mind, that's going to go to your best and most experienced safety. Who gets half the field and which two guys get the quarters of the field? I'm thinking probably Amos, maybe, maybe Savage because he's got the speed or something. I don't know, although Rudy's quite fast. But, you know, you kind of think maybe it's, it's more of a speed thing to cover more ground. It's going to Rudy Ford. He says the role requires a safety who can diagnose route patterns at a high level with enough range to shut off one full side of the field. Rudy Ford has done this and more, no literally. The interception, Rudy grabbed up the seam against the Vikings, that was in cover six, and Ford was playing a deep half zone on the other side of the field. He identified the route, got on his horse, and snatched the ball out of the sky before it could land in Adam Thielen's arms. Three of the Packers' seven interceptions since their bye week have come on cover two and cover six. They've also allowed 18 plays of 15-plus yards in that time span, but only four of them have come against these coverages. Think about that for a second. 18 times they've allowed plays of 15-plus yards. I'm sure we can vividly remember all of them. They're burned into our memories. Hate when that happens. 15-plus yards or more. 18 times. Remember, they're running these two coverages less than 50% of the time, roughly 45% of the time. Let's just call it 50. Out of the 18, you would expect roughly nine of them, nine-ish, ten-ish, to be in cover two if, if all things were equal, but in reality, only four of them. And th- if you think about it again, I, I had mentioned, I think, yesterday my befuddlement at the fact that I thought pretty much everybody was just running cover two all the time, which is what made things so difficult, especially to attack deep down the field. And I thought we were doing it, but apparently not so much. And go figure, now that we are, suddenly these big plays aren't exactly happening. Again, I understand it's not so easy as saying, just run that magic thing and then everything is fixed, right? There's, there's offensive responses to every single thing that you can call. And if you're too stagnant or in, in really any way predictable, you're going to get carved up by an even moderately competent offensive coordinator. I understand that. But it's still, whenever you see things that seem black and white like this, it's like, gee golly, who'd have thought, huh? Here's the part that I found the most fascinating, though. He says seven guys in coverage means no more blitzing, which makes sense. There's only 11 guys allowed on the field. That leaves four to rush the passer. Four men rushing the passer 
is not a blitz. You can run stunts and twists and and things like that, but you can, and and, and that's sort of the negative because you start talking about the advantages of putting a numbers advantage up there, of being able to have multiple people coming from multiple places, which also is making me think about um, the Wisconsin Badgers defense and the article that I read earlier on about Jim Leonard, how he almost always only rushes four and drops everybody else in coverage. However, he's got so many guys at the line that you don't know who's coming and who's dropping. I don't think the Packers can necessarily do that. We don't have the personnel to really do that because we'd be talking about dropping guys like Preston and bringing guys like Devondre, which can happen and I'm sure has happened so that you're still dropping four and you've got your seven in coverage. But I think the Wisconsin Badgers are more equipped in terms of having sort of lighter, smaller pass rushers and maybe sort of similar-looking inside linebackers. So, so they're very the, the four linebackers on the field are somewhat interchangeable, much more so than the Packers. But anyways, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent now. In, in other words, it's possible to have a numbers advantage while still only rushing four. By simply confusing the offensive line or even declaring that we may be bringing this, the offensive line will have no choice but to rearrange their blocking scheme based on what might be coming. Even if they know we're dropping some, the fact that they don't know if or who gives us that advantage up front while still giving us an advantage on the back end by dropping seven. Just saying. Anyways, he says, you can easily blitz the quarterback out of cover one and cover three, two staples of the Joe Barry's regular defense. But that proposition became a lot more complicated in cover two and cover six. This explains Green Bay's remarkable decrease in blitz usage. Before the bye, Green Bay had the second highest blitz rate in the NFL. But in the three weeks since, they've had the dead lowest, dead last blitz rate in the league. From 42% all the way down to 10%, it is a massive difference. But Joe Barry calling less blitzes hasn't exactly hindered their ability to get after the quarterback. If anything, it has helped. Green Bay's defense ranked 20th in sacks before the bye. They ranked 6th after it. Not to mention the fact that Rashawn Bleeping Gary, yes, he wrote that in there, Bleeping Gary chasing after the quarterback for the first half of the season. I'm going to pause here to see if you can think as to why that is. It's it's relatively self-explanatory, but it's funny because once it hits you and you get that aha moment, that's one of those times where you realize this black and white thinking a lot of us have as fans is way off. There's a whole lot of cause and effect and stuff that goes on because it seems pretty straightforward. If you're struggling to get to the quarterback, especially if you lose Rashawn Gary, and I'm sure I even said this, we're going to have to bring extra bodies to rush the passer. It's the only way we're going to generate pressure, but we're generating more pressure with less ability to pressure the quarterback. Ability in terms of less bodies pressuring as well as less talent pressuring the quarterback. How is this happening? Well, you could obviously attribute it to, well, some guys are just playing better, Kenny, Preston, etc. But I'm going to give you a hint. That ain't it. You ready? The theory is that additional bodies and coverage will delay opposing quarterbacks, giving guys like Kingsley and Igbari, Preston Smith, an extra half a second to get home. That's precisely what has happened. Both Baker Mayfield and Tua Tungavaloa held onto the ball longer on average versus Green Bay than any other game this season. Isn't that freaking remarkable? As for Kirk Cousins on Sunday, it was his second longest game of the season, and a stark contrast from when he was slinging it back in week one. Tua, Baker, and Cousins essentially held onto the ball longer in these last three games than they have all season. Essentially, what we've done is shifted our defense from being focused up front and trusting in back. That is to say, we're going to dedicate all our extra resources to getting after the quarterback and trusting the guys on the back end to just handle their business. And have now said we're going to dedicate our defense to being more of a back end focused and less front end focused team. 
The fear being, if we can't get to the quarterback, we're in trouble. But as you can see, with the talent we have that's really starting to shine through with the new adjustments to the secondary and the additional guys in coverage and and the coverage scheme adjustments and everything else, what's happening is it is a suffocating secondary where nobody can get open. The quarterback can't find anywhere to go. You are seeing things like uh, Kirk Cousins scrambling for more yards, and I'm sure guys like Justin Fields and and uh, who knows, maybe Jared Goff will grab a couple yards also because eventually, especially with less guys up front to really stop it, they'll have no choice but to take off and run. But as you've seen from the Chicago Bears, a quarterback that can run but cannot throw doesn't really equate to a lot of wins. It leads to a lot of frustration, but it's hard to win football games that way when you're looking down the field and you got nowhere to go. I also just love how it forces us to think outside the box in that way because nobody would have thought by bringing less guys to pressure, especially in the absence of Rashawn Gary, that it would spike our pressure rate because there's a variable that we didn't account for, and that is how long the quarterback is holding on to the ball. If we can't get to the quarterback in 2.5 seconds, how do we get the quarterback to hold on to the ball for 2.9 seconds? What happens to Rashawn Gary's pressure rate when the quarterback holds on to the ball from 2.4 to 2.9? What happens to Kenny and Kingsley and everybody else's pressure rate? It goes through the roof. Because it's not a constant, it's a variable. I freaking love that. Just staring us in the face and we never thought about it. Makes me think back to a book Thomas Sowell wrote called um, Basic Economics. The entire book is basically, here's a problem, and here's what everybody thinks is a good solution. And you hear the solution, you're like, that does make sense. He's like, okay, well, when you do this, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, and it comes back full circle and actually exacerbates the problem worse By doing what seems obviously right in the moment, you've made the problem significantly worse by being short-sighted. Forces you to think outside the box. Think about the ripple effect, the cause and effect of all these different things. By giving more resources to our secondary and less to our defensive front, we have spiked our pressure rate. And it makes sense. It makes perfect sense that it's happening. Amazing. And so the, the... Important thing here again is I go back and look at it and say it's three games. And even in this horrific stretch for our defense, that has been a massive disappointment. They've already had a three game stretch and we didn't even see it. We didn't even notice it. We didn't even think about it because it came just as it went just as fast as it came. Is that going to happen again? And, and like I said a couple days ago, The thing that we need is something tangible to grab onto, something that I can look at and say, this is why it changed. Otherwise, it's just random. And sometimes random things do happen, but it's more likely to believe a random thing that came will just as randomly go. But if there is a tangible change, like a massive uptick in cover two and cover four, and an explanation as to why that would cause a defense to go from being really bad to being really good without that tangible thing to grab onto, I have no choice but to assume it's going to go away. Now, again, it's a head and heart thing. My head says, hey, this makes sense. I think it's here to stay. My heart says, I don't trust this team. I don't trust it. I don't trust it. I think, you know, Detroit, well, they're they're bad on the road. I get it, man, but I've seen them. They got a scary offense. I've seen our defense fall apart. I've seen it. I'm scared. I don't trust it. But the point is, I've got something tangible that I can hang on to. And what I'm telling you is there's reason to believe that it's real. I can't make you any promises against Detroit or the playoffs or anything else, but it is very, very good news. And I appreciate Dara and some of the other people that have dug into this for doing the hard work for me 
to answer the question that we all desperately need to know, is there something tangibly different that is causing this? Or is it a fluke, which is very easy to happen over the course of three games? Could be caused by, as everybody has pointed out, Tua's uh, concussion. Baker being terrible. Can't really say Chicago because it didn't start in Chicago, but that's, you know, everybody loves to point out Chicago also. And the, the great thing about it too, though, is when you look at the defense and how it's playing, you realize the, for example, the uptick in picks. There's guys everywhere and they're all watching the ball. Not all watching the ball, but there's a lot of guys that are watching the ball and, and everywhere you go, there's a guy there. It's this sort of suffocating secondary. So yeah, I mean, you, you'll have, for example, the overthrow of Tyreek. Well, that was because of a concussion. Or maybe it's because Tyreek is four foot nine and sometimes quarterbacks aren't perfectly accurate. But if you look at that throw, there's a guy right underneath. So he's trying to get it over that defender and down into the hands of Tyreek Hill, but it doesn't come down and it ends up landing in, I think, Jair Alexander's arms. But think about that. There's a guy behind him. There's a guy in front of him. There's a guy to the right, to the left and behind him. He's completely surrounded. If you miss with that ball, it's getting picked. And that's the difference. If it was man coverage, he's wide open. It's the same thing with Justin Jefferson or anybody else. If the ball is off a little bit, it has a much higher chance of getting end up getting picked off because we're just freaking everywhere. And if you factor in the speed and the talent of this secondary, which I know we brought into question severely, but there is a lot of speed and there is a lot of talent. And when you factor that all in, and then you have guys that are suddenly playing with a larger understanding that, that get it as opposed to before, where they look like they had no idea what they were doing, you could see why it would make such a massive shift. And quarterbacks had better be very, 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 very careful with the football. Um... Anyways, I want to move off of that and on to another subject. And I honestly, I don't remember if I talked about it. I think I did. But if I did, I just want to go into more detail. But before we do that, I want to check in with some of our friends. We got to, we got to stay up on the Detroit Lions and what they're doing. Um, the Chicago Bears checking in on their mental health. And I also want to stay plugged in a little bit to the Minnesota Vikings. I didn't really go in fully hard on the uh, laughing at the enemy. So we got to kind of, you know, just see what they're up to. And why don't we start with the Chicago Bears and just check in on them? How many yards passing they got, uh, Hayes? The the Lions? The Bears. Bears. The Bears, we had 75 yards passing, but we had net 45 because we lost 30 yards. (laughs) The look on his face. On the uh, 45 yards on the sacks. My goodness. (laughs) That's bad. So so they're doing great. I hear they get the, the number one or number two overall pick, though, so that'll fix that. Maybe they get a new quarter. Uh, whoops, never mind. I'm sure they'll figure it out. Uh, let's check in on the Vikings. Make sure I know they're um, they're struggling a lot worse than the Bears fans are, I think, at this point, um, which I think I understand. I've been trying to understand the difference between the Bears and the Vikings and all that stuff, and I think part of it is, you know, the Bears kind of had their hard moment when they realized things were really going downhill fast, but they had their quick pivot to this is a rebuild year, and everything else, right? There was a brief moment where they they kind of were a lot worse than they were expecting, but then they could quickly pretend that that wasn't true, pivot to this is a rebuild year. We totally expected this. We all knew that this was going to happen. This is a part of the plan. And they've kind of just been able to coast a little bit. Vikings fans, though, they're in full meltdown mode, full on meltdown mode. That's where the conspiracy theories all come from, because, you know, you were elite. You were great. Everybody called you. And then, then people started calling you frauds. And it's like, why are you saying that? 
that's messed up. Stop saying that. Then you lose to the Lions. It's like, shut up. That was a coincidence. It doesn't matter. And then you suck again, and then you suck again, and then you get blown out by the Packers. And now it's like they're, they're, the realization that the fraud thing is, is real, and you have nothing but your record, and you're going to get eviscerated in the playoffs, and you're just praying to Thor himself, you know, Vikings and whatnot, that you don't lose to the Justin Fields of the Chicago Bears, which would be the funniest thing on planet Earth. But in the meantime, all you have is ranting and raving and screaming about how the Packers cheated because they, you know, flooded the field and they bought off the refs, even though they didn't see any of the grabbing and holding from the DBs and they didn't see Justin Jefferson bury his uh, helmet into the shoulder blade of a referee. But anyways, let's just check in really quick uh, on the Minnesota Vikings, make sure they're doing okay. And I'm sorry, but... I understand that your guys' motto over at Purple Daily Score North is win one before we die. I'm going to dumb it down even lower than that. Okay. What I want to see before I die is that I want to see the Vikings consistently competitive in big games. We can talk about culture change this and culture change that. And Kevin O'Connell, he's great and the players love playing for him. But your biology is who you are. I am so sick and tired as a Vikings fan consistently watching this team in big games, be nothing more than a stepping stone for other teams to be great. Ouch. Play some tough football. That's ridiculous. What we saw yesterday, that was pathetic. It's funny because it's true. The Vikings are literally nothing more than a stepping stone. They're, they've been a stepping stone for the Packers forever and might be again this year, uh, depending on how things pan out. Um, but even still, they know. He knows in his heart of hearts that this year is going to be nothing more than another stepping stone year. Another NFC team will get to either the NFC Championship or the Super Bowl or whatever on the literal throat of the Minnesota Vikings. It's not really literal, but you know we can pretend it is. Maybe it happens in the game. I don't know. Hopefully he's okay, though. That sounds painful. wonder if he'll be wearing those six-inch spikes or whatever. <laughs> I know the Vikings won't because they don't look cool. Let's continue. I got a couple more here. Let's see what else Vikings fans are up to. Have that. How do you get punked Wednesday, Thursday through the media? He does the gritty dance in front of you and you don't punch back at all. Like you don't, if, if I'm, if I'm Kirk, the next chance I get, I'm going right to Justin. I'm, I'm literally throwing the ball to Justin Jefferson five times in a row if needed. So Jefferson can get up do a first down signal in that dude's face and show, oh, you want to taunt us? Yeah, we are back. here too. This is a fight. Yep. And they just like, it. it's almost like they don't have that personality or something. So I was, and I with you, I don't think JJ is a soft player, but the whole sequence, the whole thing just felt wrong and weird and soft. And from JJ to Kirk to just everything about it. I get that you're playing with backup offensive linemen here and there, but my God, like, don't get punked like that, you know? And when How glorious is this, by the way? Because he's absolutely right. The, the, the Packers, and particularly Jair, were, was running his mouth about Justin Jefferson. I mean, somewhat respectfully so, but running his mouth about, you know, he's not Superman, he's just a man just like everybody else, and, you know, whatever. Wanting to, to have that one-on-one -on -one matchup. And then they get it, and you don't punish him for it. Now... One thing that I think that maybe they are not accounting for is the fact that they absolutely wanted to and were not able to. But again, then, then the, the time that you actually try to throw it to them, the ball gets broken up, 
and then he dances right in your face. Now, again, not a penalty. He danced away from you. But let's be very clear. He's mocking you. He's laughing at you. He's telling you that you suck and there's nothing you can do about it. And guess what? There's nothing that you did or could do about it. And so they're right. How do you not punch back? And, and the, the, the point that I would make, and maybe I'm wrong here, I'm, my intention today is to go back and look at all Justin Jefferson's routes, but my thought would be this. They wanted to, they just couldn't do it. But how great is it, considering the Packers' historic reputation as being a soft team, and the Vikings have historically not been. They're a defensive-focused team, um, even when they were you know, somewhat of a, a competent passing team with Stephon Diggs and Adam Thielen and whatever, and even now Justin Jefferson. They've been a, a running team. You know, Zimmer, run the ball, smash him in the mouth and play some, some hard defense. Right now in 2022, the hard team is the Packers. The Packers called you out, smacked you in the mouth, and you couldn't do anything about it. You couldn't do anything about it. How glorious is that? Speaking of, let's hear uh, all the, the weeping and wailing and crying about the gritty here. Let's see what we got to say about that. And then on the first pass breakup early in the game, does the gritty in front of you disrespectfully actually can't believe in today's NFL that that wasn't a 15-yard penalty? I was shocked too. I agree with I don't, that. I don't want taunting to be a penalty, but it is a penalty. And how that wasn't a 15-yard penalty is, is kind of a miracle for the Packers. It's a miracle. Explain how that's a penalty. I know I've already touched on this, but explain this to me. In what universe is that a penalty? Anybody? I'm not sure where they're getting this from, but I'll tell you what. Why don't we ask Dean Blandino if he thought it was a penalty? Let's go to Green Bay and Minnesota. With, with, when you're talking, to, you're, you're talking about Jair Alexander and Justin Jefferson, going into the game, there was a lot of conversation about, because Justin Jefferson torched the Green Bay secondary in week one. A lot of conversation going in from Alexander himself that this isn't going to happen again. It was a one-off. It's hard to say that Justin Jefferson got lucky because the guy's one of the best receivers in the game. But early in the game... Well, a blown coverage is somewhat lucky, but okay, go ahead. Justin Jefferson and Alexander are locked up. Jefferson drops a pass and... and He didn't drop it. It got broken up. You just showed the highlight. Jair's fist was right in there and punched it out. But please, Dean, continue. Let's get to the point of what you actually know about, which apparently isn't football. But the rules, I'm guessing you should know. And Jair does the gritty. Justin Uh Jefferson's signature move does the gritty... Is that taunting? And as you look at it, really, he was doing it away from Jefferson. He started to move away from him. He wasn't directing it at Jefferson. And that's what the officials are directed to look at. Hey, is this something? Is this part of a celebration? And the league has loosened up on those rules. Is it part of a celebration? Has loosened up. My goodness, this is so pathetic. And And look, to his credit, he said he doesn't want taunting to be a penalty, but this should have been a penalty. Well, I don't want taunting to be a penalty either, and this should not have been a penalty. The only possible way that you could say that this is a penalty is to say that the gritty is only Justin Jefferson's dance. He's the only one that can do it. And if you're doing it, that means you're making fun of him and you're taunting him. Therefore, it should have been a penalty. Come on. A taunting penalty has always been 
and will always be when a defensive player, or I guess offensive player, stands over the other person and does something. If he had done it in his face or anything else in his face, it would have been taunting. By the way, my favorite part of that highlight every time I see it, and it gets cut away right before the good part, but it's Justin Jefferson pointing at Jair as if to tattle on him. Hey, ref, he's teasing me. You want to talk about being soft? My goodness. He's doing my dance, ref. (laughs) Maybe that's why he hit the ref with his helmet. He was sad about not calling a penalty on him dancing. He's teasing me. But sorry, boys, that's not a penalty. Anyways, one final one, and then we'll take a quick break. Just hear me clearly here, because I do not want people thinking that I called him soft. He has done a ton of things during the course of this season to show he is not soft. But yesterday he was. And he was mentally soft and physically soft. And I just hope he learned the lesson that there are going to be days like that. And frustration does you no good. You have to fight through it. And I felt like, and I know he does not control getting the ball to himself, but I also felt like he got frustrated and he allowed that to overtake his entire game. Yeah. If that happens, the Vikings are dead because make no mistake, Justin Jefferson is the best player on that team. So if he mentally checks out because he's pissed off, you got no chance. Let me expand on that a little bit. It's worse than that for Vikings fans. And you you don't even realize it, but you're arguing against yourself. Um, if you're right about Jair not actually doing anything, your team is done. You're cooked. Your offense is completely screwed. Your defense is already trash. This team is 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 so far gone, it's unbelievable. Let me tell you exactly what I mean. If Jair did not uniquely shut him down if this is simply a matter of double coverage and that's all it takes to erase your entire offense you are done because that's generally the the theory here now i went and saw there's football outsiders did an article how did jair alexander shut down justin jefferson and most of the time they're talking about bracket coverages and these kinds of things from what i can tell it looks like pretty basic zone coverage right you can see a guy following Justin Jefferson down the field, and then he drops off and the safety picks him up. That is, that is called zone coverage. Pretty basic stuff. If that's all it takes to shut down Justin Jefferson, for him to run into one zone and then have another zone waiting for him, and Cousin says, ooh, there's a guy there, if that's it, that's all it takes, because apparently your tight ends and Thielen and the rest of the guys aren't good enough to, to actually do anything, and, and to be fair... I don't know that that isn't correct. That is to say, Justin Jefferson is 95% of your offense. And remember, you abandoned the old, let's just run the ball and play good defense. You abandoned that. That was Zimmer. Now you're the opposite. Now we don't care about defense, clearly. And we got our running back in the slot, (laughs) which you guys were bragging about at one point. Dalvin's being used significantly less than he has, and the run game is not even very effective this year. So what are you going to do if you're right? If you're right. Jair is not uniquely special. This is nothing to do really with him or, or anything about the Packers. This is just triple coverage. Okay, well, guess what? That's what you call a blueprint. If you're correct that all it takes is double and triple coverage, which I didn't see any double and triple coverage at all in these clips. Again, I'll go back and look at it. I didn't see any. But if you're right, and this is why I said you're arguing against yourself, if you win this argument, you lose in the end. Let's not be short-sighted about this. I know you want to argue with Packer fans and be all excited about it, but if all it takes is double coverage on Justin Jefferson to shut down your team entirely, 
and you go, you you will have one of the worst offenses and defenses in the entire NFL, and will be clearly the fourth best team in football. I'll be very interested to watch the Chicago Bears and see what they decide to do. Because if you think they're not going to do exactly what the Packers did, you're out of your mind. And if it's not a quality thing, it's just a schematic thing, you're screwed. Now, on the other hand, if the argument is more the Packers' defense did it because the defense is really good, not necessarily just Jair, fine. I couldn't care less. I'm happy for Jair. I think Jair did a fantastic job. To what degree it was him compared to this elite defense, I don't know. But if you're going to concede that and say, no, 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 the defense is dominant, it's just Jair is just a piece and not the whole thing, well, yeah, of course. Fine, great, Con- whatever, I'll, I'll take it. But, but there's only two options here, Vikings fans. One is the Packers' defense is uniquely amazing. Two, the Packers figured you out, are mediocre at best, but you're done. So you can praise the Packers or concede that your season's over. And, and probably next year, too, for, for being completely honest. Because the rebuild is, uh, is needed. Just a thought. You figure it out. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you to yourselves. You guys can discuss it. Let me know what you come back with. Anyways, why don't we take a break? Patreon.com forward slash pack underscore daddy is where you can support this podcast directly if you so choose. Also, please consider giving to Fertile Ground Ranch Discipleship Ministry. You can find more about them at FertileGroundRanch.org. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We get all hyped up thinking we're going to get some high-value Jordan Love card, but with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view on all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy Slab Packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. And honestly, the best thing for me and my son is the fact that we're kind of novices into this. When I walk into a card shop with my son, and a card says it costs $40, kind of just taking his word for it that that's a good value. So I appreciate the transparency on grading, as well as just getting excited about seeing what you could potentially get. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash packdaddy. Wow, that's crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack. That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash packdaddy for 10% off your first purchase. All right, so I don't remember if we talked about this or not. I, I think I, I mentioned it. I don't know. Maybe it was on Packernet After Dark. Maybe it was yesterday's thing. I don't know. Between all the arguments I have on Twitter, two podcasts, doing other people's podcasts, I don't remember what I said when and how. And plus, just generally going through and doing research. Maybe, maybe, maybe I, I don't know. However, um, I found this thing to be interesting. I, I had... Uh, Man, now I'm really blanking here. <laughs> I want to play this clip for you for context, but it's like, I think I did this already. I'm pretty sure we did this yesterday. I played a clip. If I didn't, let's just pretend I did. In which the, uh, I did. I'm positive I did. The Lions fan said golf is better than Rodgers, right? And we looked at that. We looked at the data. We looked at the, the uh, under pressure, all that stuff. Yes, we did. So I wanted to kind of look at this a little bit closer, or at least bring up a couple extra little tid points about his turnover-worthy plays. I upset some Vikings fans about this um, because, you know, looking at nuance is a problem, I guess. But um, I did find it interesting because, again, we're, we're kind of talking about Aaron Rodgers' general regression, and the biggest thing is the interceptions. If you look at the interceptions, 
Since uh, the last time he's thrown this many was 2010 when he threw 13, which is kind of funny, but we'll leave that alone for now. Since then, 7967996266464, this year so far 11, although we've played 17 games. And by the way, this is regular and postseason, so I don't know. But I guess you could say the last time he was even kind of close to these numbers would have been 2016 when he threw 9, 2015 was 9, 769. 7, 13, 8, 13, and 28. So 2008. So from 2008 through 2016, you know, from 7 to 13-ish, roughly 10-ish a year, was kind of standard. The thing is, he's been psychotic since 2017, and some of these obviously got injuries mixed in, but that plus the Matt LaFleur thing, and, and I think there's been a new standard set. In 2017, he threw six interceptions. That was tied for his lowest... Everish. He only had 276 dropbacks, but still, that, that was like an, an insanely low number. 2018, two interceptions. 2019, six. 2026, 2021, four. So there's a couple things at play here. Number one, we haven't seen nine interceptions, or let's say more than six, since 2016. So 11 is somewhat jarring. But remember, 2016 was a fantastic year. Uh, 2012 was a great year. He threw nine. 2010 was a great year. He threw 13. 2009 was a great year. He threw eight. Before that was 13. So 11 isn't necessarily unheard of for Rodgers. It's just unheard of recently. But again, it goes a little bit deeper than that because again, I don't find interceptions to be quite as interesting as turnover worthy plays, which is to say, how many times did you throw a ball that could have, would have, should have been picked? If you look at that, He's thrown 15 this year, as I said. You know what he threw last year when he threw four interceptions? 13. Before that, 15, 19, 11, 10, 21, 22, 19, 8, 15, 7, 21, 15, 18. He averages 15.27, call it 15 even. He averages 15 turnover-worthy plays a year. He's at exactly 15 right now. This is a perfectly average year in terms of how many dangerous or reckless throws he's thrown. The difference is a heck of a lot more of them have been caught, and you've also got pick sixes mixed in, which is also a very rare thing for Aaron Rodgers. So again, I, I, I just found that pretty fascinating, that not only is it true that his interception numbers are inflated, not to say they're incorrect. It, it is 11. There's nothing wrong with the number. I'm not saying he's, he's whatever. But in terms of quality of quarterback, I don't necessarily see the interceptions anymore as indicating his um, lesser play. Now, again, some of them much, might be more blatant. He's throwing some right into guys' chests as opposed to in the past. Maybe it was a little bit not quite as crazy. Or, I don't know. But it is at least worth noting that he hasn't really been much more reckless. As a percentage, his career average is 2.3% of his throws are usually turnover-worthy plays. He's at 2.5. Slightly higher, but not much. 2017, he was at 3.3. He was at, uh, in 2019, he was also at 2.5. 2016 was 2.4. 2015 was 2.6. 2014 was 2.7. And actually, in 2012, when he had 9, which is also a relatively high number, his turnover-worthy play percentage was only 1.9. In the year prior to that, in 2011, he had seven interceptions. His turnover-worthy play percentage was 1%. It was actually the lowest of his entire career, even though he threw seven, which is higher than it has been the last several years. The difference being, I guess, a bunch more throws. I don't know. 
but he's pretty much on track. Um, again, slightly higher, 2.3. He's at 2.5, but he's pretty much right on track with how reckless he's been throwing the football. Now, has he been more inaccurate? I don't think there's really any question. Specifically on target, and that, that really is the big thing. I keep talking about how many of these passes are in the guy's back hip pocket. If you look at his catchable passes, he's actually his third highest since 2015, so we're talking seven seasons. But 2020 and 2021 are the only seasons, hilariously, so his three highest in terms of catchable have been the last three years. This being the lowest of the three, but still 85.1%, 2019, 2016, 2018, 2015, all lower. Not that those are necessarily great years, but those are all lower. But if you look at on target, dead last. 74% of his passes, 74.2 are on target. Now, again, you could attribute that to his broken thumb or whatever, but it's just data to back up exactly what I'm saying. They're catchable, but they're all just off target, and it drives me nuts. You know, the, the Christian Watson pass that got broken up, that was technically catchable. Was it on target? Absolutely not. And it was barely catchable considering, again, the defender was there to punch the ball out. The throw to Lazard where he had to drop, you know, turn around and drop to the ground and catch the pass rather than just catch and run because it was so far behind him. So it's, it's, it's a more nuanced, weird thing. And there are other things. You look at average net yards per attempt, he's at his lowest. Yards per game is the lowest. Interception percentage, which we just talked about. A lot of it is uh, whatever, but that's by far the highest. Lowest passer rating, lowest IQR. All the while, by the way, second lowest pressure rate that he's had in this span. But it's not the picks. And again, the reason the Vikings fans got so mad is because that's the thing that they're clinging to. Ha ha, look at the picks. And it's like, well, actually, and then they get mad because you're not supposed to, well, actually. Just accept it. Just let me have this. <laughs> no, I won't. Anyways, let's turn our attention back to our friends uh, across the border here. Um, I'm really curious, uh, outside of Minnesota Vikings fans, their perspective on the Minnesota Vikings, I'm, I'm curious. I see Richard Sherman has some thoughts. Rich, what do you think, man? What's going on over there? Rich, what do you think of this Vikings team at 12-4? and four? Mitchell, I think they're they're either a first round exit or a second round exit team. They're not a Super Bowl team, but it was fun. It was a fun run. You know, they got a lot of veterans, a lot of guys I like on that team, but they're not they're not winning the Super Bowl with this team. You know, you you wanted to believe in them last week. You know, they they played hard. They you know had a balanced attack. You're like, mm, maybe maybe they figured it out, but then this game shows you they have not. You know, and it's not even like Aaron Aaron just killed them and sliced and diced them. Aaron wasn't going off like that. Their defense played really well. Aaron Rodgers only had 159 yards passing and one touchdown. Um, they gave up a lot of yards on the ground, and the Green Bay defense played uh, outstanding. You heard all the trash talk earlier in the week, all the trash talk earlier in the week. Jair Alexander, you know, talking about Justin Jefferson stuff was just a fluke. Hey, you say that, you better you better show up. And their whole defense showed up. Uh, Justin Jefferson didn't even have a catch in the first half, which is crazy. He had one catch for 15 yards in the entire game, and I think he had six targets. Hey, that's backing up your talk. That's that's You talk about it, you be about it. And um, like you said, Kirk struggled. Three interceptions. Like, you can't have that, but that's good Kirk versus bad Kirk. You know, it's Jekyll and Hyde. They've won, I think, 10. They're undefeated in one-score games, you know. But then they got, got these disgusting blowouts. You know, Dallas blew them out. 40 to three, you know, this, this game got out of hand and you're like, uh, like I can't, I can't trust a team that gets blown out so easily. And here's what I love about this as a Packer fan who is not necessarily a big fan of the Minnesota Vikings. 
The big thing last week for me was I struggled so hard to find anybody, a single person to tell me the Vikings are a good team. I couldn't find it. I found a lot of people saying the Vikings might, you know, either they were going to beat the Packers because the Packers are frauds or, you know, maybe the Packers will win, but it's not because they're great or, you know, we're not really going to talk about it. The, the bottom line is, though, the Packers are not as good as you think. But I couldn't find anybody to just flat out say, dude, this team is 12-3. and three. They have shown up in big games, you know, essentially giving me the line that Vikings fans give. I couldn't find any non-Vikings fan to just flat out say, this is a really good football team. They are a high-quality team that belongs in the conversation with the Eagles, the Cowboys, the 49ers, um, the, the, the Chiefs and the Bills and the Bengals and all that. That we, we are right in that conversation. Nobody, in fact, I don't even know if Vikings fans are willing to make that statement. Nobody will say that. Now, after this loss... I would think that you're hard-pressed to find anybody that thinks that the Vikings are even a good team, much less a team that uh, is going to do anything in the playoffs, much less a team that even really belongs in the playoffs, to be completely honest with you. Here is another clip. This is uh, via Pete Prisco. Rick's favorite team, the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> they were awful. They were terrible, and they gave up a special teams touchdown. And Kirk Cousins, this was a big game, by the way. He turned into Kirk Cousins through three picks, including a pick six. So there are some bad teams. The Vikings have a plus, I think they're minus 19 point differential. That's a terrible, terrible number for a team that has 12 wins. It's funny because they didn't ask Rick Spielman, who's sitting in studio right there, to comment on this. As far as I could tell, he wasn't asked to comment. Who's Rick Spielman? Former GM of the Minnesota Vikings. Why wouldn't they ask him for his comments on the Vikings? It's weird, isn't it? Tell me about your, I mean, give me your rebuttal to this. He didn't have one. He didn't offer one. They moved on. They asked Rick Spielman about something else. <laughs> All right, let's check back in with the Bears and see how they're doing real quick. How many yards rushing did the Detroit Lions have? Is it over 300? Uh, let's take a look. They had 265 yards rushing. My goodness. <laughs> Bro, like, it's just, like, I hate to get on the post-game show and just be like,